0: Thank you, Joseph. You guys can be seated. Y'all welcome Joseph back. Joseph and Meg just had their second little girl. Congrats, buddy. Happy for you. And and the word is that um, this, this newest one sleeps better already than the older one. So Joseph told me in between services, he said, Man, I think everybody just prayed for this one to sleep because of how bad Addison You know how much trouble Addison has with sleeping. So, man, we're really thankful for a healthy baby, and I know you guys feel very blessed. And we always love when you're here with us, leading us in worship. And so if you have your Bible this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. And then we're going to go all the way through Exodus 9, verse 7. Exodus 8, verse 16, through Exodus 9, verse 7. So if you want to turn there, and if you need a Bible, there's some on the back table in this room. And, and uh, so I say this often, but we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible here. And so if, if you're just showing up for the first time and you're like, wow, he was serious about you know praying for plagues for those people that are on vacation. Um, that we just We just preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and this is where we find ourselves this morning. The last couple of weeks, we've dealt with the first two plagues. Each had its own Sunday, however, this morning. We're going to, Lord willing, deal with three plagues. And, and the reason for that is because there's there's some repetitive nature to the language of Exodus. Because we have a God whose commands and demands don't change. We've talked about that. And, and He gives a very clear command, the same one that He's given for the other two plagues. And He gives a very clear consequence. And so that part hasn't changed. And so God is consistently, through Moses and Aaron, giving of Pharaoh... Uh, the truth about what his desire is, and that is to, to let his people go. Well, Pharaoh is consistently rejecting that command and that wish from the Lord. And so we see God doing what God does. He could have saved his people right off the bat. But he didn't do it that way. And and so the way that he's chosen to bring about the salvation of his people, as always, and we'll talk about that more at the end, as always, has very specific design and intent and certainty. And so each plague, except for the last one, which the last one is going to really speak for itself, but each plague has attacked some lesser deity that the Egyptians believed in. Okay, so you might think, frogs, like last week, what in the world, why frogs? Well, we talked about that, it's because of the uh, the Egyptian god Heket, who was a, a, a woman's body with a frog head, and, and what she meant to them, well, we're going to see two or three more this week um, that, that he speaks to as well, and so, um, that's why we're here, that's why we're in Exodus, because we started a journey a few months ago to, to take it a verse at a time, well, a section at a time, and preach verse by verse, and we'll be here... Um, I want to say we got about 62 more sermons, 62 more Sundays or so in the book of Exodus. But it will be a glorious, glorious journey. Let's, let's begin reading today. I'm going to start in verses 16 and 17. And what I'll do today is I'll read through a section at a time and I'll just kind of give you a little commentary. And so we'll get through the text. And then at the end what I hope to do is to give you one main point and then three ways that this text shows or proves that main Point. And so in verse 16, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that, it, uh, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Excuse me, I knew something. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, the first thing to notice about the third plague is that it comes with no prior warning to Pharaoh. I'm not sure why that is, but God has given Pharaoh a warning for the other two. And he's going to with the ones that will precede this one. But this particular plague has no prior warning to Pharaoh. And once again, the land is completely inundated with the creature of God's choice. Last week, it was frogs. Well, this week, it's gnats. Now, the English translation of this ancient Hebrew word is gnats, but the more modern Hebrew word is actually lice. And so it's it's not, I don't think that it's the gnat that we would experience in West Alabama. Like a hot summer day, Cool in the morning, cool in the evening of those summer days, those gnats that just fly around. and there's even some gnats that come on occasions that'll actually bite you, and, and, and they're really annoying. But really what this seems to be is more of something like lice or of some type of flea or some sort of mite. But nonetheless, just a very annoying, nagging, biting pest. And the land is covered, the people are covered. The animals are covered. And, and it seems like, like the more I talk with people through these plagues, they're like, all right, this would have been the one that got me. Like for some of you, you might be, all right, lice, I'm, up, I'm done, right? Frogs, I would have been done last week. I would have let the people go and the game would have been over. We could have moved on. So gnats or mites or some sort of biting pest. Now, the theological implication, and please keep this in mind, I can't say this every time for time's sake. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Please keep this in mind. Not only are the Egyptian people rocked to their core because of the crisis that they find themselves. I mean, we're going to see economic disaster. We're going to see a lot of different things. Like, so these biting light or whatever they are, gnats, and then last week it was frogs, and then before that, the water in the Nile turned to blood. Like, so we can almost go, man, that's that, that, that's bad, even though we probably can't imagine what it would have been like from a physical standpoint. But we can all agree that it would have been bad enough just strictly from the physical annoyance and the economic crisis that it brought about. Now, keep in mind, on top of that is they are in a spiritual crisis as well because every plague is, a, is attacking one of their deities, now, I don't know if you've ever been in a place in your life where you were already in a physical crisis and then either through your own doubts and fears or through something somebody says or just whatever the case may be, but then you all of a sudden find yourself in a theological crisis. Like, what if God isn't who I think He is? Or what if what I have believed in my whole life isn't true? Or what I've found hope in isn't true? If you've ever been in that kind of situation, then you know, like literally how weak your knees can get. Like, it's, it's troubling to say the least. So, so keep, please keep in mind, they're not just dealing with these phenomenons. What they're dealing with is a spiritual crisis as well. And so, this particular Egyptian god that um, Yahweh attacks is the god... Geb, G-E-B, it's Geb or Jeb, depending on if you say gif or Gif. So whichever way you go with that G, um, say it however you want to. But he's the God of the earth. And, and the emphasis here is is the language that the Bible uses in that Mos- uh, I'm sorry, Aaron strikes the dust of the earth with the staff. Now, I, I don't know if this means literally every speckle of dust turned into whatever this little creature is, this, this gnat or this insect, or if it's just hyperbole to speak of, there's this many of them. Like the dust of the earth, there's that many gnats, but nonetheless... This, this particular god that's attacked is the god for the Egyptians who brought crops. And if you remember, when the Nile reaches its flood stage, and once it recedes, it leaves over 30 feet of topsoil. And it was in that time of the year that this god, Geb, would be celebrated because he would be the one that brings the soil and that brings the dirt and that brings ultimately the crops. Another thing that was interesting, not that it really matters that much to us, but when it earthquakes, they believed that it was Geb's laughter. But once again, the Lord confronts an idol of the Egyptians. Verses 18 and 19. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on the man and beast. Verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so for the first time, the magicians cannot replicate the miracle we're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end but that's a first for us we've scratched our head over a couple of Sundays of going well how do the how do these magicians replicate the miracle of God well now they don't have the ability and they're not able to do that and ironically the magicians are the first ones to confess or profess publicly that this is the work of the God of the Hebrews. Now, they don't use Yahweh. They use Elohim, which is a very generic name for God. It's not a bad name for God. The Hebrews use it throughout the Old Testament, but it still is a very generic name for God. And they also acknowledge His strength. And there's this big word that means something really simple, but anthropomorphic language, which is just... Language in the Bible that uses human attributes to communicate God. And here it says, the finger of God. And this is to express that this God is supremely powerful because He's he's brought on these great acts with what? His finger. Okay, are y'all tracking with me? I know y'all. Y'all seem tired today. The humming of the air condition. All right, so the... Magicians acknowledge that this is the finger of God. But again, we have this eerie ending to the third plague. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Look at verse 20, 20 through 24, the fourth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may Know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now, if you underline or highlight verse 22, that part, I will set apart, is critical. And we'll come back to that at the end. But the Lord is distinguishing his people. Verse 23, thus I will put a division. Again, he's distinguishing them in verse 23 also. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. So the fourth plague comes in these swarms. or We saw this word last week with the frogs, teams, which we see in Genesis 1. It's just a lot. Like there's a countless number of these flies and this, this more than likely isn't a housefly as much as I hate houseflies. Look, am I alone with that? I have a holy hatred for houseflies. I can't rest. You can ask my kids. Like I can't sit still if I know there's one buzzing around. And it seems like every time I sit still when I can't find it, I hear it. Zoom. I pay my kids to kill them. Titus, how much money have you made killing flies, man? A lot. He's gonna make something up. All right. Sometimes fifty cents a fly. Sometimes a dollar a fly. It just depends on the mood that I'm in. And then there are those wonderful moments. Y'all, I I don't. And again, I may be showing you something about myself that makes me weird. Weirder. Um, We uh, weirder. (laughs) Uh, If I can somehow lock one in a bathroom and it's just me and him, (laughs) it's so satisfying to just know that that fly is about to come to his death. I'll get a, I'll get a towel. Jerry, do you do that? <laughs> do you, yeah, I feel like... Anyway. Yes, I closed the door and it's on. Like, it's on. So anyway, the, these are swarms of flies that were probably what we could understand or relate to as deer flies or dog flies or like a horse fly, like a, like a biting fly. So not just a nasty, annoying creature... But this, this particular fly, according to their language and context, would have been one that bites. This plague was against the Egyptian god of creation. And if you want to jot this down, K-H-E-P-R-I, Kepri. Kepri had the head of a fly. It was a human body with the head of a fly. And this god was the one who brought into being, so creator, and was responsible for bringing the sun to be every morning. So Kepri was praised every morning for his faithfulness to bring the sun about. Now if you're familiar with scripture at all, you can see how blasphemous this is. As much as scripture speaks to God's faithfulness in the, in the warmth and protection that he gives as He brings the sun forth every week. But nonetheless, this God Kepri was the God of creation and had, had the head of a fly. And so once again... Uh, it's, it, there is a little humor, if, if, if you want to call it that, that you can find in this. God says, okay, so you want to worship frogs? You want to worship gnats you wanna wor- or, or the dust of the earth? Or you want to worship flies? Here you go. Here you go. And remember, they're not going to be quick to kill these specific creatures because they're deities. They don't kill them. They worship them. And so God gives them all they want of the gods they've chosen to worship. I, I love the, the way that the Lord tells Moses here to go before Pharaoh. He says to present yourself to Pharaoh, which literally means, Moses, stand your ground. Like I have to think that Moses' confidence is beginning to build as he stands in front of time and time again, not only his enemy, but the most powerful man in, in the world at this time. And so let's look at verse 25 through 32. It says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offering we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? 27, We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so Pharaoh said, I will not let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must go, not go very far away. And then he says again, plead for me. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. And his servants and from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. It seems once again that Pharaoh is giving in, it seems that he's submitting to the Lord. But just like last week, we know that Pharaoh is not giving in or submitting to the Lord. He just wants relief. He just wants things to get back to normal as quick as possible. And so he asked uh, Moses and, and Aaron again to intercede for him and to plead or to offer a supplication and a prayer to their God. But did you notice his language even before that? He's a master manipulator. He says, you can worship your God in my land. Now Moses' response to that shows us two things. First thing is it shows us probably this was some sort of trick or ploy on, behalf, um, on the part of Pharaoh to do away with God's people. Because he knew if they offered uh, worship to Yahweh, it, like in the town square, if you will, that the Egyptians would revolt and, the, and that the Egyptians would kill them. But secondarily, and I think maybe primarily, Moses is committed to do as the Lord commanded. The Lord didn't tell them to worship in the city. The Lord told them to go into the wilderness on a 3 days journey and, and to worship there. And so Moses is uh, fully committed to obey the words of the Lord, and, and he doesn't budge. He has no intention of doing anything his own way or doing anything Pharaoh's own way, no matter how much easier it might make things. I mean, Moses could have easily justified, okay, 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 he said we could worship here, so then we'll just... We'll just worship here. But it wasn't what the Lord said. I mean, like, go back to Genesis 3 and see how the serpent deals with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? I mean, it's just these small little variations, these small little detours that, that at first they seem like such an uh, you know, easy way out. It's just an easy way out. It's not really disobe- uh, disobeying the Lord. It's not really disobedience to Him fully. But it ultimately always ends unless there's repentance and an all out rejection of who God is and his truths. And so Moses and Aaron, they they do not budge, but again I think it's worth pointing out just the graciousness that, that Moses and Aaron have toward a very real present enemy. Right? You remember we talked last week about the fact that he's not obsessed with justice? He used to be. Remember back when he was killing folks? He's not obsessed with justice and he has this very real enemy in front of him that, it, again, we would, it would make sense for us if we, if we saw Moses and Aaron just sort of sit back and say, hey, you're getting what you deserve, buddy. Let the people go. God's given a clear command and you've disobeyed him. And so here come the insects. Here comes the water to blood. Here comes the, as we're going to see in a second, the disease on the livestock and they could sit back and somewhat enjoy the destruction that's coming on their enemy. But we see the opposite. We see them plead for God to relent on their enemy. And so their understanding that God is the ultimate judge and not putting themselves in the position as judge frees them to love their enemy and not obsess themselves over the tearing down or destruction of their enemy. So I love that, once again, Moses and Aaron plead on behalf of, Of Pharaoh and the Lord hears them and there's not a fly found in the land and just as much of a miracle as it would be for the flies to come into the land just as much of a miracle it is for the flies to leave the land and we see here that the Lord for the first time at least from what we know in scripture he protects his people from this plague and so some liberal you know scholars like to explain these plagues away well the heap of dead frogs came about you know that that brought maggots and those were the lice or mites or whatever they were talking about and then the maggots produced the flies well okay whatever if there's some logic to that with you and that's what happened that, that doesn't really bring a whole lot of threat to me but you still got to deal with the timing of it when the Lord says it, it happens like I'm doing this tomorrow and then all the flies are gone and then the flies stayed away from the people of God There's miraculous power being displayed here. All right, let's look at this last plague. Chapter 9. Y'all hang in there. We're almost there. 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord. Notice the, the shift, the intensity of the plagues. All right? the, or it's, it, it's driving up. It's amping up. It was the finger of the Lord a second ago. Now this, this, this language speaks to the hand of the Lord. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. And all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, he fact-checks the Lord here. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. This plague is catastrophic to the Egyptian culture. We actually have people that live in our country right now that if every livestock on, in our country died in an instant, they would never know it. One, they're vegans, so they're not eating meat, right? Well, and they probably don't want want the animals to die that they never see anyway, so they're not wearing like you know you know boots or you have a leather purse or a leather wallet or whatever the case may be. But but my point is this: in the Egyptian culture, there was no such person. Transportation, the, the effectiveness of their military, the military supplies, their crops, and so for all of the livestock to die meant an economic disaster. I don't know that we can fully understand. I mean, the only thing, and this is so silly compared to what they went through, but like if the internet crashed, oh my goodness, that would be devastating. But seriously, seriously, it is in our culture. And so it was, it was something of a magnitude that even the water in the Nile turning to blood didn't bring about. This, this was an economic disaster, and this plague was against a very specific Egyptian goddess. Her name was Hathor, H-A-T-H-O-R. And and she was a looker, had the head of a cow. But interestingly, this ancient Egyptian goddess, she personified the principles of joy, feminine love, and motherhood. And so this, this goddess was cherished and loved. And she was basically Mother Earth. It says um, in, in one place that I read that Hathor was one of the most important and complex goddesses of ancient Egypt. Which I believe this is why this, this plague is labeled very bad. Not only does, is the judgment intensifying. But I think because of also from a spiritual standpoint. What is attacked and what is killed from the Egyptians is a very sacred part of their religion and what they believed. And the Lord again is exposing the reality of false worship. He's exposing it. And once again, we see the devastation kept from the people of God. And so this plague was not only the first to bring death to this magnitude, but it was also the first one that, that we know for sure destroyed the personal property of Pharaoh. And so his losses are, are mounting as his punishment becomes more and more and more severe. And again, I think it's worth pointing that out, even though it seems obvious, but he doesn't relent. He doesn't stop. He doesn't obey the Lord. And so the judgment becomes more and more and more and more severe. He needs to simply turn and submit to the one true God. He, he only wants to use the Hebrew God as a rabbit's foot. Remember, he has no issue with the Hebrew God. Or the fact that they have a God. They're polytheistic, which means they're fine with you having a God. Aaron, if you want to have a God, you have a God. Bob, if you want to have a God, you have a God. We're fine. But the issue is authority. The issue is is Yahweh, the great I Am, claims authority over every other God. In fact, is the only true real God. And Pharaoh has none of that and doesn't want anything to do with that. And this fifth plague ends in the same way the first five ended. Pharaoh's heart is stone. And he does not let the people go. I think there's one massive point that looms over basically all the plagues, but just for time's sake, these today. And the point is this, that God is sovereign over everything. That God is sovereign over everything. So what does that mean? What is sovereignty? Now, this definition is not in any way comprehensive but I think it's a good starting point if sovereignty is a new word for you. But biblical sovereignty is this. The unstoppable power and authority of God. It's more than that and it can be said in so many different ways than that. But for the, for the benefit of today and, and what we're seeing specifically in Exodus is the unstoppable power and authority of God. It means that nothing and no one has the power and authority to stop any act, any event, design, or purpose that God intends to bring about. And just in case you thought, maybe I was just kind of pulling this out of my hat, and it's just what I think or what I feel like I should believe about God, so I want you to believe what I believe about God, let me show you a couple of places in Scripture that... Um, If you look at the context, they are communicating this same thing. And so I'm not pulling them out of context. Actually, in their context, they mean that the Lord is sovereign over everything. In Job 42, verse 2, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Daniel, chapter 5, verse 35, says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He, God, does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Listen to this. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations and friends. That's just to name a few. The Bible is literally full of different ways to express to us and to communicate us to us that the Lord is sovereign over everything. That there is there is no power greater and there's no authority greater. That's why our definition is the unstoppable power and authority of God. Now, I feel like most Bible-believing Christians, and maybe most of you here today, in this moment, in this context of Exodus, you would salute this. You would say, oh yeah, my God's the strongest God. My God can't be stopped. My God has full authority. But I think when we start to apply the sovereignty of God to our individual lives in context and understanding of why what happens to us happens to us, it can get a little bit more murky. So I I think maybe this will clear some things up, hopefully. So how does this play out? How does this fact that God is sovereign over everything play out in Exodus 8 and 9? I think in three ways at least. The first way, it shows that God is sovereign over creation. Now, again, who could argue that? Right? Right? One, he uses a staff, which is just a, a, a piece of wood that has no heartbeat, it has no life in it whatsoever, and he uses that staff to strike the nile and it turns to blood. He uses that just dead piece of wood to strike the dust and it turns to gnats, and so he's using a piece of wood to accomplish great things, not to mention the most ba- one of the most basic essential elements of life, water. He turns it to blood and then he brings frogs everywhere and then he brings gnats everywhere and then he brings flies and then he brings a disease over livestock. I mean, who in the right mind wouldn't say, yeah, I mean, the flies are obeying him. The frogs have obeyed him. And friends, we could spend literally another hour walking through different scriptures to where we see, even in the life and ministry of Jesus, the winds and the waves, What? obey him he's not just sovereign over those of us made in his image he's literally sovereign over everything in every single aspect of creation he can use anything he wants and i love that he can do it anytime he wants Right, that just shows all the more that like he's not just opening this cage. So the best I could do with the plague is to somehow bunch a bunch of flies up and run in there and open the door and all the flies run out and then that's basically the end of my like miracle. Right. But no, he tells you the time and the way. And when it's time to be over, guess what? It's over. Because he's sovereign. He has complete power and authority over every aspect of creation. This, that message is clear throughout the plagues. Secondly, he's sovereign over Satan. You might go, Hank, I don't see Satan in this text. Well, we've, we've talked about this power that these magicians and these talking about their secret ancient arts. And we've talked a lot about demonic power. And so whether this was sleight of hand that they were doing, which I don't think it was, or some sort of supernatural demonic power they were able to replicate well up to this point they're not able to replicate the miracle and i've been holding on to this wanting to tell you this for a couple of weeks do you know why they were not able to replicate this miracle because god didn't let them that's why the only reason they were able to do what they did in the last two plagues was because god allowed them to Job chapter 1 is a great place to see that. I'm not going to read that to you. It's it's a little lengthy. But in Matthew chapter 1, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1, verse 27, I want you to see this play out in a few different places. And they were all amazed, Mark says, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this? Speaking of the teaching of Jesus, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they what? obey him. Luke chapter 22 verse 31. This is, these are the words of Christ. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. How in the world does Simon find his way out of this reality that this power that is greater than he is demands that he be destroyed and he wants to sift him like wheat? Watch what happens. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And, and Jesus' prayers are so sure and His power is so strong and his, his authority is so real. He knows that when He intercedes on behalf of Simon Peter who is His own... He can say these kind of words. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Like it's going to happen. Satan's not going to get you. Even though he demands for you and he wants to destroy your soul. Peter, you're mine. And I have power and authority over your enemy. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Familiar passage. Maybe you've never thought about it in the, in the specific way of spiritual warfare get there matthew 28 18 this is the last thing jesus told his disciples all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me how much every ounce revelation chapter 17 verse 14 says this they these are satans and his army satan and his armies they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he who is lord of lords and king of kings and those who are called I'm sorry, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. God is sovereign over Satan. Satan, believer, has zero power and authority in your life. All he can do at best is harass you. But God has disarmed him as it relates to you if you're a believer. And here's what I mean. Satan's primary weapon... Is that he is an accuser. And that makes sense. Because this is a world full of sinful people. And so we have guilt that's real. We have shame that's real. Because we have sin that's real. And if Satan has a way to sink his claws into our guilt and shame and desires. And drag us with him. then he can do that. He's powerful enough to do that. But Jesus has disarmed him towards us. How? Because Jesus has taken our sin, our shame, and our guilt. And so now what we have is an enemy that has no teeth. If he's a lion, he prowls around like a royal lion. He has no teeth and he has no fangs. Is he a real threat? Be honest. No. Can he harass us? Yes. But can he ultimately destroy us? And even his harassment is still under the sovereign control of God. He's an enemy on a leash. And it's a short one. And so, I find it ironic that for the first, the first uh, public acknowledgement that this, this is an act of God comes from these magicians. Lastly, not only is Satan sovereign, I'm sorry, the, the Lord sovereign over creation, the Lord sovereign over Satan, but the Lord is sovereign over his people. I had you highlight, or at least underline, the, these few places in this section where um, the Lord makes a distinction, that word is used, or makes a division between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel, or he sets them apart, or some of your translations say he separates them. Now God does not always spare his children the effects of earthly judgment we like we know that but he does always look over them with a special providence but i think what he's doing in in this particular instance is he's proving once again that he's the one true god he's showing his people he's showing the egyptians and he's showing pharaoh that yahweh can do what pharaoh cannot do particularly protect his people Pharaoh's sovereignty over his people is incomplete because he's not God. And so his sovereignty can only go so far. His authority can only go so far. His rule can only go so far. But not with Yahweh. Yahweh has the ability to protect his people from these plagues. And Pharaoh, he's not able. He can't protect himself. And so in that sparing not only does it emphasize His sovereignty, but it also shows that God has a special providence over His people. A specific care and love for His people. Which lets us know through these distinguishing marks, not only does He have this special care and providence over His people, but He will in fact be the one that saves them. I mean, y'all know when we get on the other side of the Red Sea here in a few weeks, nobody's looking around high-fiving each other saying, great job, guys. Right? It's not that Pharaoh's heart finally turned and Pharaoh finally came to his senses and, you know, got saved. No, God saves his people. Moses is not the hero. Aaron is not the hero. The, The Israelites certainly are not the hero. Pharaoh's not the hero. God is the hero. God's the one that saves. And so his his sovereignty over his people is expressed and shown in that way. And so why is this important for us to see today? Or or is it important for us to see today? I'm gonna say yes. Yes. Particularly in the time that we're in. As you turn on the news, you get on social media and you see nothing but chaos and hatred, turmoil. And as a Christian, you have to think, What is going on? Like churches are fighting each other. Pastors are bashing each other. Like if we, are we off the rocker? Is God off the rocker? Like this Western Christian experience that we've experienced for the last hundred or so years is drastically changing. Like the days of revival and walk the aisle and everybody sing kumbaya around the campfire seem to be diminishing. And so does that mean that God can't save? What does it depend on? God's ultimate rescue mission. Which is still going on. God is still saving God still is redeeming. God has never and will never intend to save someone and fail. I'm going to say that again. God has never and will never intend to save someone and fail. I want, if you don't take my word for it, search the scriptures. Show me. Show me the man or the woman or the child or the people group that God set out to save that he was not able to save. Inside the universal proclamation of, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him might have eternal life. Within that beautiful, glorious, open door, proclamation whosoever will within that proclamation is design and certainty it's not just merely an opportunity it's not just merely given a chance i mean think of it this way how is god saving israel is he giving them the opportunity to be saved is he saying, okay, guys, here's what I can do, but you, if you choose the right thing to do, then you can come. Is that what he's doing? What's he doing? He's saving them. He's saving them. He's saving them in the only way that they can be saved. And the same is true today. And so as we, as the church, we take the gospel to the masses, and to the world, and because of the universal offer of the gospel, I can look into the eyeballs of anybody in any corner of this planet and say, God has loved in this way, that if you believe in him, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. I can do that, but I I know that the hope in that The decisive hand in that is not my oracle skills or my timing or my ability to communicate the gospel, which are things we fret over. And it's certainly not in the hands of the sinner, the enslaved one, the one that the Bible calls spiritually dead. So what's the hope? That God saves. That's the hope the truth that god is sovereign over his people and that he saves every single person he intends to save is the reason we do missions like i, it, I don't i really can't even comprehend the application of god's sovereignty in this way well that means i shouldn't do anything like well if god's going to save who he's going to save then that means that i shouldn't i don't even know what you're talking about like, you're not getting it from the bible for one and I don't understand why it would take you that direction. The reason for missions, the reason for evangelism is because God saves. That's why we do it. The hope for some dear covenant partner friends of ours that I don't want to say their name out loud right now is that God saves. We can take the gospel into the darkest places, not dependent on our ability Are not dependent on the the lost person to make a right choice, but fully dependent as we faithfully proclaim the gospel that within that proclamation there is design and there is certainty and that God saves. Like, Like this is why we go. It's why we go. And so our hope in proclaiming is not human dependent. And the decisive hand ultimately is not Satan's. It's not yours and it's not mine. It's the Lord. So Christ died in order to bring people to himself. And to overcome their rebellion. And to gather them omnipotently and infallibly. And that will happen. It is happening. He saves He's sovereign over his people. Please don't limit Christ's purposes to the cross. He's just simply providing an opportunity. Christ's purposes on the cross were accomplished, it is finished. The salvation is sure. His people will come. And the means that He uses to bring His people to Himself is His Spirit-filled church, proclaiming the good news of the gospel to everyone that will sit there long enough to listen to it. And we beg Him to do what only He can do. I want to close with, I feel like a beautiful picture of everything we just talked about. Because I know sovereignty talk can just get our minds like into like arguments. Like all of you, maybe you, you're probably having debates with me right now, or debates. And 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 I don't present to you any sort of theology or worldview with an agenda that you think a certain way. All I want to give you is scripture. And I trust the Lord. I, I trust the Lord to work in your heart as He sees fit. I just want to give you scripture. And and so like, but this in Zechariah three, I feel like is a really clear place for us to see the God's power and authority over Satan and it's a really clear place for us to see God's power and authority over the salvation of his people and so Zechariah has a vision Joseph you can come on Zechariah has a vision it says then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord so, so you have Joshua who's the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and then you have Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him right, remember, that's his weapon. He's an accuser. Accusations. He sticks his claws into guilt and shame and sin. He's not standing there to lie. I mean, this isn't the place where Satan lies. This is the place where Satan tells the truth. And he's right. Joshua's guilty. You and I are guilty. Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord speaks. Listen, friends. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Listen to this. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? A brand of stick. The Lord looks at Satan and he says, rebuke you. I've chosen Israel. And is this Joshua? Is is he not one that I plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. I mean, what else does he have? Right? What else do you and I have in, in this idea of God being infinitely holy and he requires holiness and in and of ourselves, we don't have the ability to just waltz up to the Lord with any sort of spirituality or righteousness that accomplishes anything. And so Joshua was standing before the Lord dressed in the same way that all of us would be dressed standing before the Lord. That is filthy rags in regards to our righteousness, guilty, condemned sinner. We stand there and we have nothing to bring to the holy God. All we can do is just stare at the ground and hope for mercy. Joshua standing before the angel clothed the filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. I love this. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? Satan demands... To see Joshua condemned and all Joshua has to say for himself is, presented, is represented by his garments. He has nothing to stand before the Lord. But then the Lord in his graciousness because the Lord is sovereign over his people and he's sovereign over the salvation of his people. He rebukes Satan saying, hey, I picked him out of the fire. Now get that boy some clothes. Put some clean garment And whatever, I don't know if it excites you, if you get amped up about having a clean turban or not, but I think you get the picture, okay? And you see this beautiful picture of the grace and the mercy of this sovereign God. And so we have this God who is as big as the Bible proclaims Him. And He has full authority and He is unstoppable. And that is frightening. But praise Him. One of the primary ways that He has shown His sovereignty His power and the unstoppable reality of His nature is through saving His people. And so, my plea for you this morning is that you would believe in Jesus. That you yourself would recognize that you don't have the righteousness in and of you to save yourself. There's no such thing as you cleaning yourself up, or we would have just been, or or we would have read that in Joshua's case. can only receive mercy we can only receive mercy and so i I beg you implore you to look to the only one who can save and that's jesus if you'd like for me to pray with you afterwards i would be glad to or to talk with you more about but there's really nothing i can do to affect this what it looks like to For God to be working in your heart is literally you can't take it off your mind. He's drawing you to himself and revealing more and more of the beauty and reality of who he is and how much you desperately need him. And so maybe in this moment you just find yourself maybe on your face or just in your heart and mind, in the altar of your heart laying it down before Jesus and saying I surrender everything to you as my Lord and my Savior from this point on I want to follow you I pray that that happens let's pray Lord we thank you for your grace and your mercy Father as we approach your table here in response in just a moment Father God I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts for the Lord. in this room, Lord, that we would be steadfast and immovable in our faith in the fact that you're steadfast and immovable and that you are powerful and that you save. I pray that we would not shrink back in this season that we're in as individuals and as a country. But I pray that as the church of the living God that we would rise up and that we would be, we would be the salt and light that you have made, made us and created us to be and that we would know that your authority and your power are unstoppable and that you are still actively saving your people. So Father, give us faithfulness and obedience to boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. So God, I pray that you would glorify yourself in these final moments. It's in Christ's name.